Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Episode 13. One. Shanghai. Then. Chan Juan decided she did not like the Russian. He smelled of rendered fat and wore a black suit he must have stolen from a funeral. He leaned against the stone rail, facing out over the Huangpu River, away from Shanghai. He wanted her to think he was watching the marshes and warehouses of Pudong across the boat-studded black. But every few seconds, when he thought she wasn't looking, he glanced at Chan out of the corner of his eye. She noticed and ignored him. The Vund curved north, bounded to the east by the river, and to the west by the alien yellowed marble facades of traders' clubs and banks, and far away, the embassies, British and American and French. 1928 had not been a good year. But good or bad, the Bund endured and served itself, as always. Few nationalist flags flew here. Chen had dressed for a party. Heels, a long high-collared black dress slit past the knee, a fox fur stole, silver earrings, gray silk opera gloves with silver trim, and underneath all that, a tasteful cross. She had not dressed to be ogled on the Bund by some threadbare knife-faced foreign ghost. She drew a long breath through her cigarette and pondered the exigencies of her profession. Tallow stink and uneven footsteps heralded the Russian's approach. When she looked right, he leaned against the rail beside her. His coat was too tight, or there was too much muscle underneath, his head perched between mounds of shoulder. She tipped ash and straightened to leave. Stay, he said in bad Chinese, tones broken, vowels slurred. I tell you a story. You don't know any story I want to hear. He caught her by the upper arm as she turned away. His fingers and palm were rough, his grip hard enough to bruise. I think I do, he said. She stopped. In the stone den, he continued, pronunciation almost perfect now, but sing-song, learned but not understood. There lived a poet. His eyes glittered like ice covered with alcohol and set on fire. She frowned. Your boss knows this is the world's worst passphrase, right? 
Any child would know the next part. If this was England, would you use ring-a-ring-a-roses? We're not in England. Say it. She sharpened her voice and wished her consonants could cut him. He was a lion addict, resolved to eat ten lions. What's your name, dear? Grace, she said. For some reason, foreigners liked people to have foreign names. Any foreign name would do. Didn't have to be Russian or German or whatever. All their languages sounded the same anyway. Maybe even they couldn't tell the difference. He let her go and smiled a crooked smile with crooked teeth. I'm sorry, my dear. I don't make the rules. But it is a pleasure to meet you. Do you have the envelope? She snapped open her pearled pocketbook and lifted from within a red envelope sealed with white wax and stamped with a winged lion. Here, you open it. Don't you have hands? I do. I have yours. They were alone, despite the lights and crowds. Farther up the Bund, couples strolled. A black car idled near the sidewalk. She slid her thumb beneath the envelope's flap and tugged once. The seal popped. She withdrew and unfolded the note inside. There's nothing written here, just red paper. It's not a letter, he said. It's a packing label. And his arm was around her neck, his other hand pressing a wadded wet cloth to her mouth and nose. She let out a muffled cry, stopped breathing, and sagged into him. Behind them, the car's engine roared to life. He grunted under her weight, shifted his grip from her neck to her shoulder, so he'd seemed to be supporting a drunken girlfriend home, and turned them both away from the river. The cloth left Chan Juan's mouth. She snaked her arm around his, twisted her hip, dropped her weight, and broke his shoulder. He screamed higher than she expected. Dark spots swam through her vision. The chloroform or ether or whatever slowed her a little. The Russian tripped and fell and tried to rise even through the pain. She straddled his back, took his neck in the crook of her elbow, and squeezed. His gasps reminded her of a carp she'd landed when she was six. He twitched under her. Here's a story, she hissed into his ear. On the mountain was a monk, and the monk said, Master, tell me a story. And this was the story he told. She let the Russian go when he passed out. Car doors slammed up the road, and heavy voices, foreign voices, cried, Stop! She dove to the ground and rolled. Shots split the night, but the shooter wasn't aiming at Chen. The Russian's friends dove for cover. A second black car pulled to the curb. Its door flew open and Wu Jing dove out. He ran toward Chen Juan, a black blur, while Asan covered them both with his pistol from the passenger seat. Wu Jing got his arm under the Russians, lifted from his side while Chen Juan lifted from hers, and together they pulled him into the car's spacious back seat. Wu Jing climbed back behind the wheel and gunned the engine. Chen Duan cuffed the Russian's hands behind him, shackled his legs together, and tied the handcuffs to the leg irons before he woke up. He thrashed and roared, as she expected. Up front, Asan traded fire with the pursuing Russians. Wu Jing turned a hard left and a harder right. What's your name? Chen's Russian wasn't much better than his Chinese, but it would pass. Fuck you. She hit him in the broken shoulder and he screamed. Name. Vasily he said and repeated it like a charm. Let's trade stories, Vasily. You told me one, I told you one. Now it's your turn again. I can't. Wu Jing yanked the car through a 270 degree hairpin. Chen Juan removed her right glove and placed her bare hand on Vasily's shoulder. Where are the girls, Vasily? Where's the professor? Tell me now and you'll wake up somewhere better than this and never see me again. 
Hold out, and I'll introduce you to my other friends. I don't think you would like them very much, Vasily. I don't like them very much, to be honest. But they ask good questions. The kind people just can't help answering. No, he said. The girls, the professor. Hassan leaned out the window and fired again. The pursuing car swerved and crashed through a cabbage stand. Vasily slumped. They're in Pudong, he said and gave an address. Thank you, Vasily. Turns out you did know a story I wanted to hear. Chen took the chloroform rag from the seat beside her, pressed it over his mouth and nose, and waited for him to still. We've got it, she shouted up to Wu Jing and Asan. Now we just swoop in and save the girls before the professor can move. Wu Jing laughed, like it's that easy. It's worked so far. You think luck is the same as a good plan. You have my back, she said and grinned when she caught his eye in the rearview mirror. And I have yours. That's better than luck. Vasily groaned. Chen Zhuan decided she liked him better this way. Vatican City, now. I have never seen such irresponsible corner-cutting operational behavior in my entire life as I have since you joined up. A quiet please sign hung on the wall in the black archives beneath the Vatican, receiving even less respect than usual. Though for a change, Grace was the one shouting. Sal was shouting back. Excuse me for saving lives, she said. You wanted us to let those tourists die. I, I saw a chance and took it. She was covered in ash and cuts and bruises, just like Grace. Though, Sal noted bitterly, the other woman's cuts and bruises seemed shallower. The rest of the team, Liam and Menchu and Asante, studiously ignored the argument. And it worked out, so I don't see the problem. I, for one, Liam said, consulting his cell phone, could murder a pizza. You don't see the problem? Grace seemed to have a less figurative sort of murder on her mind. She brandished her copy of Middlemarch the way Sal had seen drunks brandish bar stools. That's exactly the problem. You don't see. You're good at patterns, you're good at streets, and you ask all the right questions, except the ones that matter, the ones about risk, about death. You and Asante went off to Glasgow without backup. You plug yourself into a magical computer because, oh, why not? You endanger us all, trying to save civilians from Team One, and now you run into hive-infested tunnels to rescue some dumb tourists who should have listened to the goddamn cave-in warning we put out expressly to keep them from being eaten by giant bugs. Father Menchu coughed and opened his mouth as if to speak, but Grace wheeled on him, and he decided against it. Asante opened her suitcase and began extracting leather-bound tomes. I'm thinking pepperoni and anchovies, Liam said hopefully. Sal spread her arms. Ash rained from her clothes. We protect people. That's the point. That's my point anyway. That's why I'm here. We don't just protect people. Grace stormed towards Sal. Middlemarch's spine stopped just short of Sal's sternum. Grace's fingers left smudge prints on the gold-stamped modern library binding. We protect everyone. We protect them from monsters. We protect them from people like Norse who think they can use the monsters. And we protect them from Team One who has to clean up if we fail. And there are, in case you hadn't noticed, five of us. So we protect each other, which means we don't take crazy risks. We close ranks. We work together. We listen to one another. We take care of one another. You want our ranks so close, nothing can get through. Hell, you want our ranks so close, even I don't know what's going on half the time. If you'd open up a little, maybe I would have known about the pheromones in the first place. Our world's dangerous. This isn't a game. This isn't a, what, a, a campfire circle. I keep telling you and you don't listen. 
people get hurt. I don't need to be told that. It looks to me like you do. My brother, Sal said slowly, is in a fucking coma, okay? What do you know about getting hurt? Grace's face closed like a door. Her nostrils flared. Sal had seen her look calmer while strangling a demon. A muscle at the corner of her jaw twitched. She smelled of sweat, ash, and fury. Sal wondered in a distant academic way what she would do if Grace decided to hit her. Grace slammed her book down on the table, turned, and marched out of the archive. Pizza for four, then, Liam thumbed the speed dial. Sal looked from him to Manchu to Asante, but found no answers. So she left. Two, Huangpu River, then. Wu Jing led the briefing on the barge. The strike team lounged on benches, drinking tea, smoking. The barge creaked around them. Outside, the motor churned. Shen Zhuan sat in the back. She'd changed at the dock into more comfortable grays, boots and slacks and a long sleeve blouse. She drank oversteep tea and wished it would dull the aftertaste of chloroform. The projector screen showed a pale, dark-haired man in late middle age, high cheekbones, broad eyes, mustachioed, with a touch of beard at his chin. A strangler's humor curved his generous lips. This, Wu Jing said for members of the strike team who didn't already know, is Professor Yuri Antopov, a white Russian emigre and former advisor to von Ungerg Sternberg, the blood count of Mongolia. The slouchers straightened. They knew the stories. None had seen him in person, of course. The agents they sent north returned in pieces. The blood count had sent a suit made from one skin, complete with a tanned face mask and an invitation to a masquerade ball in Ulaanbaatar. Antopo fled south after von Unberg's Sternberg fell. For years, he operated with Green Gang protection in Shanghai's French concession under the name Alexandrov, concocting new opium additives. He has been, in some ways, a model citizen. We did not know of the connection between Antopov and Alexandrov until an intelligence transfer from the concession's GRU, coordinated by Officer Chen. He raised a hand, and she saluted back like she'd seen Americans do in movies. The strike team laughed. Antopov used his green gang contacts to rebuild his Mongolian workshop. We believe his research is directed toward the... Mujing trailed off and looked at the floor. He'd seen the evidence with his own eyes time and again, but sometimes Grace doubted he would ever truly believe their work. He's a Bathurst, she said to spare him the embarrassment. He's buying people to render alive for tallow. He believes this will help him achieve immortality or something like it. And now we know the location of his workshop. Chen Zhuan finished her tea. Unfortunately, he knows that we know. So he'll step up his plans and kill his hostages soon. We have to move fast. We'll go in from the waterfront, Wu Jing said. The rendering operation takes a great deal of space. It's most likely in the central stockroom here. The projectionist changed slides, replacing on top of sneer with the warehouse floor plan. We'll secure the dock first and storm through these loading doors. Chen Chuan nodded. I'll go in from the second floor before the assault. Impossible. I don't think so. If I jump from the building next door. That's not what I mean. The strike team turned sideways on their benches so they could watch Chen Chuan and Wu Jing at the same time. Asan chuckled. We have to get the hostages out, Chen said. We don't know what he'll do after we attack, except that he's a monster and monsters don't like to lose. Give me 20 minutes to save lives. Wu Jing crossed his arms. Fine, 
but I don't want to risk your being caught in the crossfire. Once you have the hostages out, leave, unless we've given the all clear. You don't want me riding to your rescue? I want you safe. There's no such thing as safe, she said, but I'll take care. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Vatican City. Now. St. Peter's Square was as good a place as any to stomp and sulk. Sal, hands in pockets, shoulders slumped under her jacket, dodged tourists and stomped through posed photographs and muttered apologies. The Basilica Dome towered. Crosses were everywhere. Best architecture in the Western world, or at least the showiest. There is the Pope's balcony, a passing tour guide said in Spanish, or had she said there is the Pope's hat. At least there wasn't an appearance scheduled today. Back home, Sal had checked the weather every morning before getting dressed. Here, she checked the papal schedule. But she couldn't dress for tourists, only suffer them or not. Sal, Manchu's voice. She considered storming on. A large Japanese family was lining up for a group shot with the basilica in the background, and if she timed it just right, she could ruin the photo. If she was having a bad day, shouldn't everyone? She stopped beside a pillar and waited for the priest to catch up. I don't ask for much, she said while he caught his breath. I know you all keep telling me to be patient, but I have been. I've learned the rules and kept them, and I can't catch a break with her. Manchu took a handkerchief from his inside pocket and mopped his brow. It was cool for a Roman afternoon, but with Roman weather, the modifying phrase mattered. I mean, I don't even want to talk about it, Sal continued. Grace is a private person, sure, you've all told me that at one time or another. And we're in this together, fight against the world, so we do need to learn to give one another space. 
Munchu folded his handkerchief and replaced it in his pocket. The Japanese family's toddler son escaped his mother and sprinted toward the camera, arms extended. Mom handed the baby to dad and ran to bring the toddler back. He wouldn't let go of the cameraman's, his uncle's, arm. Why? Sal asked when she couldn't stand Menchu's silence any longer. Why what? Menchu replied. We should be elite, shouldn't we? The best in the world? Asante is, sure, and Grace, I guess. I've never seen anyone who can take or give a beating like that woman. But Liam should be what's-his-face from that Hackers movie, the blonde one, and you should be, I don't know, Father Teresa, and I should be Sam Spade with better clothes, and we should all of us speak 30 languages and know kung fu. It would make some missions easier, Menchu allowed. Do you know anyone like that? No, neither do I. The toddler started crying. Mom lifted him. People are strange. You never know how they'll respond to what it is we do until they meet the other world for the first time. Many people break. Some forget. Uh, some become enchanted. They chase after the monsters. Some fight back. You've met all kinds since you started working with us. No way to know who will do what in advance. We've always recruited from survivors. Is that how you found Grace? Mom sang and the toddler stopped crying. She blotted his cheeks with her sleeve, then led him back to the family. Let Grace be Grace, Menchu said. She'll be fine, so will you. She just needs time. Something's been off between us ever since we met, Sal said. I want to fix it. This kind of tension between squad mates is dangerous. I've seen it go bad before. Grace would never endanger the mission or any of us. Trust me. We need to get this sorted before it's a problem. I should talk to her, I guess. Where does she live? I can't say. Seriously? Mom took the baby from dad who knelt and offered the toddler a chocolate wrapped in foil. Mom scowled. She's a private person, Menchu said. Talk to her on the next mission. When we're on a mission, she's either reading and doesn't want to be disturbed, or she's hitting rotting meat monsters in the face with large rocks, in which case I'd rather not bother her. You're still new. I've been here six months. That's new for Grace. She's a lifer. She'll come to you when she's ready. Or the mountain could go to Muhammad. Grace's quarters, Menchu said, are a secret. If you pursue this, you might attract the church's attention, and I can only protect you so much. A toddler opened the foil, stuffed the chocolate in his mouth, and smiled with dirty teeth. Uncle, still kneeling, aimed the camera. Snap. Pudong, then. Chen Juan landed so lightly on the warehouse roof that she didn't startle the roosting pigeons. They shifted their wings and glared at her with evil eyes. Around her, under her, Pudong sweltered and stank through the summer night, Shanghai's ugly cast-off skin, lit by red lanterns in the moon. Back west across the river, the boon squatted, smug as a city on fire. Someday someone would burn it down, even marble would burn if the fires were stoked hot enough. She spidered over rooftop tiles to a latched shut window and peered through. Empty hallway, 10 feet below, a row of closed doors, each with a flap in the base. The rooftop windows that should have looked into the closed rooms had been painted black from the inside. Spread eagled, Chen Juan poked her head over the roof's edge. By mutual agreement, an oil lamp pretended to light the alley and a single guard pretended to watch the shadows it cast. He smoked, just tobacco, she thought, 
but she couldn't smell for sure from this distance. The second hand of her watch ticked round the face. She didn't have time for more reconnaissance. No way through but in. She slipped the latch on the first window, lowered herself into the hall, dropped to a crouch, and listened. Behind each padlocked door, she heard shallow breathing. Were the captives asleep? Oh, not drugged, she hoped. Doors blocked both ends of the hall. The first bolted and locked. The second merely latched. She listened at the second door, and when she heard nothing, edged it open. Straight shot through shadows down a stairwell to the back door where the guard waited, smoking. Perfect. She returned to the first cell door. Antopov must have spent the Green Gang's money on mystical paraphernalia, muscle, and human beings. He certainly hadn't spent any on locks. Chen Juan's mother had taught her to open locks like these when she could barely hold a pick. Tension lever, exhale, hook pins and rake and twist. The latch popped. Behind the door, the breathing stopped. Limbs scrambled on straw, the person inside drawing back into the corner like a scared rat. Chen Juan wanted to be sick. She never felt the way the person trapped here felt, as she could imagine, though. She opened the door. The girl, the woman, wore a sackcloth dress and had large green eyes and long, thin limbs that had been slender once. She curled in the corner on straw, kneels under her chin, hands curled to claws. She was paler than she would have been if she had been outside recently. So, menya savut grace, she said. The woman, thanks small mercies, looked whole. Hands battered from pounding the door, wan about the face, bruised on the cheek, but not cut, not burned, not yet. I'm here to rescue you, but you need to be quiet. Can you walk? The woman nodded. How long have you been here? Days, uh, weeks. Do you know how many of them there are? No. Wait, Chen said. I'll get the others. The next cell held a Fujinese girl who was worse off. She'd fought harder. When Chen Juan opened her door, she pounced. The girl was strong, but she wasn't fast, and Chen wrestled her down with little trouble. I'm here to help you. She knew the look in the girl's eyes, trust waiting for an excuse to turn vengeful. Altogether, there were 11 prisoners, several rooms held two. Mostly girls from Fujian and Jiangsu, and a few white Russians, taxi dancers who'd made the wrong enemy. Chen supposed she herself would have been the 12th, with Antopov conducting the ritual, being its 13th participant. Foreigners seemed to like 13s for some reason. One round of the stars, plus one. Two minutes left, said her watch. Gunfire erupted from the waterfront. She swore. Wu Jing must have started early. Come on, she said to the prisoners. The stairwell remained empty. The woman followed her down. Behind the doors to the main stockroom, guns fired, men screamed, and a high, reedy voice laughed. Ground floor. The door opened as she reached for it. The smoking guard paused, shocked, hand halfway to his pistol. Chen Juan hit him in the knee and in the throat, and he fell back and did not rise. The alley was still. The gunfire didn't raise alarms in Pudong after dark. And there was gunfire, pistols and automatic weapons. She listened. Cries in Chinese. Those could be Antopov's men, or hers. She thought she heard Wu Jing's voice. The hostages hesitated in the shelter of the warehouse. She should lead them to safety, that was the plan. Get them to the motor launch and rendezvous with Wu Jing back at Central. But someone had started the attack early, and after four minutes, Wu Jing still hadn't given the all clear. Damn it. 
You have my back and I have yours. Go, she told the hostages. Down to that street lamp, turn left, run straight for the docks. There's a motor launch waiting. Give them this. She reached beneath the collar of her jacket and produced her cross. They'll know it's for me. The girl who'd tackled Chen Duan upstairs seemed the most calm, so Chen handed her the cross. I have to help my friends. Go. They went. Chen relieved the fallen sentry of his gun. She hadn't brought a weapon herself. They were unwieldy for second story work. Best use what she found to hand. She heard another scream from the stockroom. She counted breaths until the hostages disappeared around the corner. Four? Five. She crept down the hall and edged open the stockroom door. Light dazzled her. She smelled hot wax and burnt hair. On top of she recognized from photographs, though none of the photos had shown him hovering a foot off the ground and cackling. Three goons took cover behind an enormous lidded iron pot, the purpose of which Chen tried not to ponder, and they fired at Wu Jing's team. The team, for their part, did not seem concerned by the goons. They were too busy wrestling with sculptures made of wax. The wax things bubbled up from a trough at Antopov's feet and took shape as they advanced. Eight-legged first, then four, then ape-like, galloping toward Wu Jing's commandos with wax mouths open in silent screams. They left bubbling puddles in their wake. Come to me, Antopov said in Russian and laughed. Chen Zhuan had heard that laugh before in similar scenarios, most recently in Harbin. Normal people, in her experience, did not laugh that way. Sanity tended to mellow the tenor register. She edged into the stockroom. Antopov hovered, she saw now, before an enormous carved bone candlestick, upon which rested a candle as thick as Chen's own thigh. Lit. When Antopov gestured with his long-nailed hands, the flame leapt and the wax monsters moved. You come to me in my house as if I were a common criminal. My blood is noble, and I have burned in secret fires. I have summoned you, and I will melt you. A wax gorilla tackled Hassan, and they rolled together. Hassan was strong and broad, but when he punched the pasty creature, melting wax clung to his hands. The gorilla dripped onto him, into his eyes, into his mouth, and he screamed. Wu Jing ran from his cover to kick the gorilla in the face. One of Antopov's goons took aim. Chen Zhuan dropped him with two shots to the back and one to the head. Before the others could turn, she shifted aim to Antopov and fired three more times, two for the center of mass and one to the head, just in case. Wax fountained from Antopov's trough and snatched the bullets from midair. The hovering Russian turned to her, roaring with fury. His goons took aim. Wu Jing saw Chen Zhuan in trouble, raised his own sidearm, fired. One goon fell, the second turned, and a wax tiger pounce tumbled Wu Jing to the ground and caught his face in its jaws. Wu Jing screamed. So did Chen Zhuan. She ran for Antopov, gun still in hand, and leapt toward him, shielding her face with her arms. She was heavier than a bullet. A curtain of hot wax covered her skin, her clothes. It burned, but did not stop her. In an instant, she was through and fell into Antopov, hands around the man's legs, dragging him to earth against the obscene weightlessness of his magic. The Russian cried out as he fell and hit the floor. Chen climbed onto him, ignoring the pain from her burnt skin, the stink of her singed hair, and the sickening, foreign taste of wax in her mouth. He twisted serpent-like beneath her, bent 180 degrees from the waist, and lunged to strike the bridge of her nose with his forehead. She fell back, and he was on her, fast, too fast. The candle flame behind him towering into a column of light, licking the rafters. 
She clawed his face and tore him, but instead of skin, long strips of wax came away beneath her nails, bearing more wax beneath, the color of blood. Too late, Antopov said, cackling. His teeth were yellow and his tongue was pink. The will is the flame and the flesh is the wax. The mind is the mold and the meat is the clay. His hand grew large and heavy and he struck her face. His fingers puddled against her cheek, wax smearing to block her nose and mouth. His other hand became a snake twining around her arm. His limbs pulled like melted sugar when she recoiled, but they did not let her go. The rafters were aflame. Wax ran and bubbled over her skin. Wu Jing struggled to his feet, head still caught in the tiger's jaws, fighting as he suffocated. Asan lay still. Chen Juan clawed at her mouth but could not breathe. Black spots danced between her and the world, and those black spots had faces in them. And the faces were all mouth and laughing with Antopov's inhuman cadence. She stumbled, regained her feet, fell against the candlestick. Her hand came away wet with melted wax. A quarter of the massive candle had melted since she entered the stockroom. The will is the flame, and the flesh is the wax. Wu Jing fired twice into the tiger's stomach and fell. Chen Zhuang closed her grip around the candle's wick. The flame died. She heard a scream that might have been a laugh, and then was still. Three. Rome, now. Manhunts, in Sal's experience, resembled wrestling matches. You circled your target and sought openings. Does she shop? Does she stay on the move? Is she a homebody? Any family? Sexual partners? What do you know about her, really? That said, Sal imagined any wrestling match she might start with Grace would end in a few painful seconds. Sal had seen gangland bruisers on PCP drop easier than that woman. So maybe the analogy broke down. Though, to be fair, she wasn't having much more luck tracking Grace than she would have had wrestling her. Start with facts. Grace likes books. She speaks more languages than anyone should. She fights, she's on time everywhere, and throws shade when other people aren't. Which might suggest a military background, but didn't answer the question of where she lived. And anyway, if you relied too much on guesswork, you fell into the old Sherlock Holmes signal-to-noise trap. Did the mailman forget to shave because he was stressed, or because he lost his razor, or because the razor broke? That mud on the bartender's trouser cuff, really from East London, where it rained at 4 p.m.? Or maybe the hose out back of the bar was leaking, and he walked through a puddle while taking out the trash? Grace rode an orange Vespa. Fine, so did half a Rome. She dressed well, understated, clean-lined fashion, sans visible labels. Simple haircut. Never drank, as far as Sal saw, but then they'd been on mission most of the time they'd spent together. No sense hunting AA meetings in the Rome metro area. The brawling was a lead, at least. Grace trained with Liam sometimes, before and after missions. But Liam, when Sal asked him on the sly, didn't know if Grace had other sparring partners. Grace's style wasn't exactly a style at all. Hard strikes and bone breaks, throwing her whole weight to snap a joint or sweep a limb. More ferocity than technique. It looked like a hot, vicious mess, with Grace playing the part of vicious and the other guy in the leading role of mess. Sal spent a week sweeping MMA and boxing gyms, playing innocent. I'm trying to get my brother's girlfriend a birthday present, like lessons or a free month or something, and I know she trains, but I don't know if she trains here. A Chinese woman, about so tall, 
Sharp jaw, dark hair, bob cut, bites angry. Half the gym attendants segued immediately into hitting on Sal before confessing ignorance. The other half just shook their heads and shrugged. A woman at a boxing gym said she knew most of the fighters in the area, and unless Sal meant Sandy Huang, who was a six-foot heavyweight with a shaved head, the description didn't sound familiar. Thanks, but no such luck. Sal visited the clinic where her brother lay comatose and sat beside Perry's bed for hours, watching him, until the attending nurse left to check on a file he hadn't received. She slid into the man's chair. His screensaver wasn't even password protected. Liam would have had a fit and keyed as best she could through nasty yellow-black Dosk-esque prompts until she found a search function. Chen produced a few hundred hits. Chen Grace? Zero. Did she use her Chinese name on records? Sal checked her own history, records of treatment, and a division tag which yielded a list of 20 names when she keyed that in. Most marked dead or retired. Manchu, Liam, Asante. No Grace. No Chen's on the entire list. Somehow, in spite of all the getting hurt she did, Grace had never been patched up. Or if she had, there was no record of it here. Was there a separate Vatican clinic for people whose job boiled down to hitting demons very hard in the face? But no, Sal had seen Team One heavies lined up in this very waiting room after a mission. Could Grace's file be sealed? Maybe, but sealed against clinic personnel? And if Grace's history was sealed, why wouldn't Sal's be too? They took all the same missions together. Unless Grace was some sort of secret Vatican assassin or something. But if so, why would she be with Team 3? And wouldn't there have been at least one mission where Grace couldn't come? 3 seemed to be her permanent assignment. The nurse cleared his throat and Sal closed the search. I'm so sorry, I couldn't get any reception down here and I'm waiting on an email. She showed him her phone. You can maybe switch from airplane mode. Oh, Jesus, I mean, God. Ah, this is pretty embarrassing. So, no gym, no medical record. Grace had to be paid somehow, but the Vatican wouldn't just hand Sal its payroll data. She walked back the long way to the archive, over marble tile and under ceilings painted by Renaissance masters who probably expected the world passing beneath them would have more elevated thoughts than how they could break into their co-worker's apartment. Sorry, Michelangelo. Then again, she'd read Machiavelli. What was it Asante kept saying? Plus the mum chose? Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose, Asante offered when she asked. Sal slumped in Liam's desk chair and stared up into the archive's vaulted ceiling. Asante adjusted her jeweler's lamp and the metal armature that held the magnifying glass above the papyrus on her desk. May I ask why? It was on my mind, Sal said. Asante touched a button on the lamp. The light turned ultraviolet and her nails fluoresced. Have you ever wondered, she asked, if there might be more than one history of the world? Not exactly. Sal kicked her legs up on the desk, leaned back, and examined the detritus of Liam's past. I mean, I guess there are lots of history books. Not what I meant, Asante said. The conceptual apparatus we deploy to construct world history from the text to which we have access, and I use that term loosely, of course. Of course. Assumes that present conditions also applied in the past. You can see traces of this throughout Shakespeare. Romans throw caps in the air and discuss their hoes as if they wore 17th century English fashion rather than togas. But we know they didn't. Sal excavated the desk. Interlaced pop science magazines and Italian maxim, 
A printout of 2,600. Don't we? Certainly. But given what else we know, Asante adjusted the magnifying glass, about magic in the occult, it seems likely that the mystical water level, to use Father Menchu's delightful analogy, has risen and fallen before our time. Events once commonplace are impossible these days. But the human mind does not, as we've seen, admit of discontinuities. Kant understood. For experience to function, we require an unbroken and uniform stream of time, even if the noumenal world remains beyond our grasp. Uh-huh. Liam had dog-eared his 2600 printout. Sal flipped through, but couldn't make sense of the circuit diagrams or the politics. So when the water level sinks, we paper over Camelot and the Yellow Emperor, Prester John and Shambhala, and Ravana's kingdom in Sri Lanka. Sal pushed the magazines to one side and saw it soot-stained and golden, Grace's copy of Middlemarch. Does it matter? If nothing else, it lends some sense to Buffy, all those eons of demon kings and Giles' books, which nobody knows about and never manifest in the archaeological record. We papered them over. I meant, does it matter for our work? Obviously, the theory has practical applications as well, Asante said, but criticism is its own reward. Sal raised Middlemarch like a surrender flag. Grace left her book. She'll pick it up before the next mission. She doesn't read, save on assignment. She reads fast, then. Poor girl would save a great deal of money if she just checked them out of the library. It's not as though we don't have the best stock collection in the world. Maybe Grace doesn't like... Sal pointed to Asante's papyrus. Fifth Dynasty Scorpion Charmer's Manual? Egyptian? Sounds like a page-turner. It's a scroll. It doesn't have pages. You know what I mean. We have a complete edition of the mystery of Edwin Drood in subsection A, if you want a thriller. Sal frowned. Where does Grace get the books, then? Buys them. She doesn't strike me as the type to browse. Why do you ask? Curious, I guess. Sal took her feet off Liam's desk, shook the mouse, and logged in as a guest. Grace used a flip phone. She scorned email. Impossible as it seemed, Sal doubted the woman owned a computer. And Liam had set his machine up for guests before Sal joined the team. In which case, who was using it? Browser history. Scroll down. Bookseller website, free delivery. Log in. Sal typed G, waited. Nothing. Delete. C, instead. Told herself not to hold her breath. Autocomplete, ever helpful, supplied chen.grace at, with a line of bullets for the password. Nice. Order history, shipping address. Print. Two hours later, Sal stood on a street corner staring up at St. Catherine's Convent. Gargoyles on the corners, heavy drapes on the windows, a guard at the gate, and friendly-looking German shepherds pacing the yard. And there, on the fourth floor, Grace's room. At least this wouldn't be easy. Sal hated easy. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. There's something weird going on with influencers right now. I'm a little freaked out. They just get everything they want. Everything's a little too perfect. Their smiles are a little too straight. They're using filters I can't find anywhere. I know what I'm about to say might sound a little unhinged, but 
I think it might be witchcraft. At least, that's what Jenna Clayton thought right before she went missing. We're excited to introduce a new show from Realm, If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It, starring Oscar-nominated actress Gabourey Sidibe. When a Black writer goes missing, a white podcast host with a savior complex takes up the cause of finding her and collides with a coven of influencers she suspects are responsible. This show is a little bit of the craft meets Mean Girls meets Get Out. Learn more about If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith and additional editing by Corey Barton and Brooks Ewald. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Osadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>